you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober, right here on Green Earth Radio. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore on the new Green Earth Radio. We've got a great show for you today. Meat Lovers May continues with our guest, Stanley Fishman, author of Tender Grass-Fed Meat. Plus, our desserts will tell you how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. But first, let's go to the appetizers and find out what happened this week in the world of real food. A California sh- as California chefs have been holding fundraisers, which serve foie gras before the ban goes into effect in July... Animal rights activists have been staging protests outside of the dinners. The chefs have also gotten their photos posted on extreme animal rights websites and received threats. I don't understand why activists are still going after chefs serving foie gras when the activists got their wish and the ducks and the duck liver will be banned. Foie gras isn't going to get become illegal before July first. And for being opposed to foie gras over its supposed cruelty, it doesn't make a lot of sense to terrorize the people that eat it. A UCLA study showed fructose makes it harder for your brain to learn and remember information. But the damage can be minimized if the meat also includes omega-3 fatty acids. This study was done by giving all rats a sugary substance and giving some rats an omega-3 supplement as well. The ones taking the omega-3 were able to get through the maze faster. I encourage people to to rarely consume foods with fructose, but it's good to know that when you do eat fructose products, you can pair something like fish or grass-fed beef and not fully be affected by the processed sugar. Domino's Pizza shareholders have rejected the Humane Society's rev- resolution to ban gestation crates for their pigs. Other restaurants such as McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's, and the supermarket chain Safeway have said they have plans to phase out the crates. The Texas Farm Bureau praises Domino's for not caving into the research of animal rights groups. But this isn't about letting animal rights groups win. Gestation crates aren't only bad for the animals, they also result in products that are bad for you, your health, and for the environment. Researchers find that children who drink fresh raw milk have a better immune response to allergens and are less likely to develop allergy asthma. This study comes at a time when Minnesota farm buying club managers are on trial for selling raw milk. These findings show that raw milk can actually help prevent problems that opponents of dairy always bring up. A study at Cambridge University finds that cooking food at home increases your life expectancy. The study was done with men and women over 65 and was conducted over 10 years. The researchers found that frequent cooking was linked to the test subject's survival. This This study is common sense. Something, cooking something yourself is the only way you can know if food is free of any preservatives and that it's all natural. 
And now for our main course. As this is Meat Lovers May, today's main course is cooking grass-fed beef. Meat Lovers May is all about reaching out to people who like to eat meat, but won't eat it because of misguided information. The health and environmental problems associated with beef only apply to factory farming and grain-finished meat. Pastured meats are both good for you and the planet. But then there are people who say they don't like the taste of grass-fed beef. To anyone who says that, I reply you haven't cooked it right. Grass-fed beef cooks differently than conventional meat. It cooks at a lower temperature and finishes cooking faster. Maybe you purchased some grass-fed beef at the store, but consumed, but it, but it didn't taste good. I know I've been unimpressed with some grass-fed beef restaurants. I say these restaurants cook it wrong. Here to talk with me about the right way to cook grass-fed beef is Stanley Fishman, who has written two books educating us on the proper way to cook grass-fed beef. His first book was Tender Grass-Fed Meat, and then he followed it with Tender Grass-Fed Barbecue. Stanley, it's great to have you here. Hold on, bear with me. I believe Stanley is uh, is here. Let me try to reach him again. Hello. Hi, Stanley. Hi, Aaron. I guess we just got disconnected somehow. Right. Sorry about that. It happened. It's great to have you on the show. And I'm very happy to be here. So uh, you're perfect for this month, which our theme this month is Meat Lovers May. It's a great theme. It <laughs> makes me hungry every time I think of it. Oh, I love that. To love hearing that. So, basically, what Meat Lovers May, as I've explained about, is we're talking to people that like to eat meat, but for one reason or another, they don't eat as much. They maybe hear the health benefits. You know, they're not good. Or the one we, we have to talk about this show is perhaps some people haven't cooked it right when they've bought grass-fed beef in the store and it didn't come out right and You've written two books that deal with that. The first one's called Grass, Tender Grass-Fed Meat, and then you follow that up with Tender Grass-Fed Barbecue. And I think these are wonderful resources of learning the right way to cook grass-fed meat. Well, well thank you. I wrote the books basically because when I first started uh, cooking grass-fed meat, it was a disaster. I tried to cook them like you'd cook conventional meat, and the result was that it was tough and it tasted terrible. And uh, not being one to give up easily, and because I wanted all the health benefits I got that I could get from grass-fed meat, I started researching how people used to cook it. And, you know, basically you'd find a bunch of old cookbooks that would give you free ingredients and say, cook until done, but sometimes you'd find a little more information than that. And I began experimenting and trying to recreate traditional methods, and what I discovered is that if you cook it right the way people used to, it's... It's to me and to everybody else, I think, who's eaten what I've cooked. Not, uh, It tastes so much better. You feel so much better when you eat it, and it's actually easier to cook. Well, that's great. And now, how did you first get interested in cooking grass-fed meats? Well, some years ago, I had a health collapse, and the um, doctors I had basically said that they couldn't do anything for me, and so I should just resign myself to a pretty um, bleak and short future. And when they were when they were describing that, part of me just sort of tuned out of it and began thinking, this is like some kind of bad play that I don't want to play my part in. So I knew at that point I had to find another way of dealing with illness. 
and of restoring health. And I did a lot of research, and eventually it led me to the website of the Weston A. Price Foundation, and which has a wonderful uh, variety of articles on every aspect of eating and food. I um, was fascinated by it. I got Dr. Price's book. And what I came to realize for myself is that what we eat is the real key, real key to being healthy. That um, here you had all these so-called primitive peoples who were so much healthier than modern people. And they did it mainly by eating their traditional diet, which, of course, didn't include processed food. It didn't include the white sugar, the white flour, the myriads of chemicals that they put in food nowadays, and it was quite natural. So that was was very successful, but I, I was running into one problem. Though I, though I reached a point where pretty much all my symptoms were gone, I was still weak. I was tired all the time. And while I had read that they would eat meat to restore strength, the meat that I was eating just wasn't doing it. And it was ordinary supermarket meat, probably higher quality, if there is such a difference in quality between the two, but it just wasn't getting it done for me. And when I began reading some articles about pastured and grass-fed meat, I thought oh, this might be the key, especially as I had read in a number of old books and old cookbooks that people used to eat meat to rebuild their strength after an illness. They did that all the way from Rome to, um, to the United States in the 19th century, and it just seemed to be something that everybody knew, at least in, in terms of European food. And so I got some grass-fed meat, and that's when I ran into the difficulty of cooking it. That's pretty much how I got there. Right. I remember you said in your book that your first one you overcooked the first time you did it. Well, I, I think it wasn't so much that I didn't overcook it as that I did things to it, which I now realize made it tough and terrible. I cooked it at too high a temperature. I marinated it in ingredients that make grass-fed meat tough. I did not know how to deal with it. In other words, I cooked it the same way I'd cooked um, what I'll just call factory conventional meat, and it didn't work at all. And it, it came out not overcooked, but the meat was tough, and it was, it was terrible. And that's, I think the reason is that we have become so used to making the meat that comes from the factory farms and has fed an unnatural diet which changes the very composition of the meat of the animal, as well as many other things, that uh, the cooking that we have in the U.S. today and over the last, and probably since World War II, has been adapted to dealing with this kind of meat, and we've forgotten how to cook the meat that people have been cooking for most of history. And uh, one of the characteristics, I think, which is kind of key, is that there's something about eating a grain-based diet, or whatever they feed them these days, grain is part of it, but not all of it, that uh, puts a lot of water in the flesh of a cow, changes the texture. Uh, it's not what they were meant to eat, so they're not as healthy as they would be. And that has real implications when you try to cook it. So, But when you're eating meat that is traditional and is healthy, the adaptations that were made to cook the, um, the, the factory meat just don't work. Right. Now you talked about there's certain things that you shouldn't marinate it with. Um, what are some of the things that it should not be marinated with? Well, this will probably come as a surprise to a lot of people because when most people think of marinade, they think of vinegar, some kind of vinegar or wine or acidic ingredients. 
And what I found is that they make grass-fed meat tougher if you marinate them in them. There is a way to kind of get by that, which is if you include plenty of fat in the marinade. But if you don't include the right amount of fat, you're going to end up with, uh, with tough meat. And in some of my research, I came to the idea that the reason that they put they use these ingredients to marinate meat in wasn't so much to make it tender as it was to keep it from spoiling so they could cook it a few days down the road. What are some of the fats that should be included in the marinade? Well, um, one of the easiest would be, would be extra virgin olive oil, preferably unfiltered. That's been traditional all over Europe for a very long time and in many other places. And it actually penetrates the meat much more than an acidic marinade would. And uh, it also, I think, improves the texture and the flavor. Uh, some other fats that work pretty well are unrefined sesame oil, unrefined toasted sesame oil. You could try coconut oil, though I haven't particularly liked the flavor that it gives, so I love coconut oil as something to eat. And uh, some, uh, But uh, something that I've learned more about when I wrote my second book is the wonderful results you can get from using different animal fats from healthy animals. And I would be talking here about using beef fat, lard, bison fat, goose fat, duck fat, uh, even lamb fat. The key is that it should come from grass-fed or pastured animals, and uh, that in itself will penetrate the meat and make it more tender and uh, give it tremendous flavor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, animal fats is certainly a thing that's overlooked, really, in cooking now. I mean, the whole lard has been very demonized and tallow that, I mean, start cooking these foods in, in vegetable oils. And I'm guessing, because I believe in your book you said, there's a part where you said not to cook it in oils. You're referring to, like, vegetable oils like canola oil and things like that. Yeah, there are several reasons for that. One is because they have a, a terrible balance of omega-3 to omega-6. They're way overbalanced on the omega-6 side. The other reason is that it wasn't even possible to make most of these oils like canola and soy, even corn oil, without heavily, heavily refining the, um, the plants that they come from so you can get oil out. It's not something that people ever ate before the advent of modern food technology, which I think has in many ways been more of a curse than a blessing. And I would go so far as to say that our bodies don't really know what to do with that kind of oil. And the other thing is that oil basically uh, gets real smoky and burns much more than animal fats, which generally have are very good for cooking. And I forgot to mention butter. Pure butter is a wonderful thing to cook in. Uh, if you get good butter, but basically I I don't touch any of those modern uh, polyunsaturated oils. It's always been so strange to me that they were sold to people on the grounds that they were more healthy than the traditional fats when the exact opposite is true. Oh, yes, I mean, that's a big problem. I mean, the whole lipid hypothesis developed around the time that we started using all these oils, and that was, I mean... Somehow we, we looked at the meat as the problem when we were consuming these oils as well as these, the white flour that we'd never been consuming in this portion before. Oh, yeah. It is, just, it is just amazing. If you look at how people used to eat even 100 years ago, they, there is such a huge difference in quality that it is um, and the types of food they ate. And, they, and, and if you look at photos of people, say, from 100 years ago and so on, you're not going to find very many that are obese or look unhealthy. Uh, you're, you're, basically, if people had enough to eat, they looked, uh, they looked pretty fit.
and they didn't have so many of the chronic diseases that we have today. Right, and I mean, I love your story that actually got better by eating, by eating grass-fed meat and going to this. And was it a thing that did people ever suggest when, when you were sick the, about um, doing something like going vegetarian or vegan? Oh, they did. And in a sense, you know, some of my friends would tell me, you are doing everything wrong. You should go on an approved diet supervised by your doctor. And, uh, you know, I, I'd never gone vegetarian or vegan, but there was one point in my life where I ate a lot of soy products and tried to eat a plant-based and grain-based diet with some meat, and it didn't work for me at all. And the kind of the choice that I had and what I was thinking in my head is, should I believe what the, uh, the mainstream believes, knowing that they have, that a lot of the scientific research has been hired by people who were hired to achieve a certain result, which is basically get people to eat these inferior products that nobody would eat unless they thought it was, that the, there was something wrong with the old ones, or should I try eating as people had eaten for most of history? And, uh, you know, you could even go into the 19th century and find that a lot of doctors, and even in the early 20th century, even in Europe and the U.S., would treat people by giving them meat to eat. Or they would have them go on a raw milk diet, or they would prescribe a specific food for them instead of drugs. And my gut feel. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, and I see that a lot of these, um, a lot of these, like uh, when vegetarianism was recommended as being healthy, as meat was uh, to be bad. I mean, it's a lot of. It was recommended by a lot of vegetarians who did it for ethical reasons, and I see them basically trying to go, uh, you know, use health as a reason, but that wasn't their main motivation for being vegetarian. No, I think the, the main motivation was a belief that it was wrong to kill animals for food. And what's been fascinating to me about this is that when Dr. Weston A. Price started his research, where he traveled all over the world, studying the peoples who were still eating their traditional diets and their relatives who had switched to a modern diet and comparing them, he thought that he would find out that the healthy peoples were vegetarians. And he, he would have probably preferred to find that because he didn't like the idea of killing animals. But, you know, the guy was honest and he had integrity, and what he found out was the exact opposite, that every people he studied ate a large amount of animal foods and some of them ate almost exclusively animal foods. Right, and also, you know, another one is finding this raw milk. Now, when you cook it in butter, do you use uh, butter cultured from raw milk? Well, I g generally use uh, pastured butter. Uh, it seems to me that's kind of a waste of good cultured raw butter to cook it <laughs> because that stuff is, is really wonderful just to eat eat raw. So I don't use uh, raw butter or raw milk for cooking because I, I think that that kind of takes away from the whole purpose that you got them in the first place, or at least part of it. It does, and also, it's also, I mean, raw milk is a lot more expensive that, I mean, I could see myself cooking in, like, raw butter if, if it wasn't the price that it is, but, I mean, I, I mainly buy the raw cultured butter for, for stuff like putting on, like, bread or putting on vegetables, um, Oh, it's great for that, and you can actually put some of it raw on a hot steak or a hot piece of meat, which was has been a custom all over the world, and it will give you a wonderful flavor there. And that shouldn't raise the temperature to the point where it reduces the nutritional value. Right, but I do believe that raw meat, uh, raw, um, I mean, raw. I do believe that butter um, should be 
grass-fed, just like the beef. That's also important to have it pastured. I couldn't agree with you more because so much of the health... Uh, you know, when I did my research, there was a big emphasis on eating healthy animals who were well-fed and healthy and free of disease, which is not necessarily what we get when we buy uh, meat from a factory animal. But uh, I think it's crucial in terms of eating any uh, herbivorous grass-eating animal that it be one that ate grass and, and was finished on grass, too. And it is important to know that even raw-fed milk has to be grass-fed because I know there have been some instances of milk where either raw milk where either it wasn't grass-fed or the there wasn't any we didn't know whether or not it came from grass-fed cows and that can be dangerous if you have raw milk that comes from cows that were grain-fed. Yeah, it's uh, not the natural. It's not their natural food, and, and you kind of reminded me of the swill dairies that were what initially gave raw raw milk a very bad name, where they would put some cows in a uh, lock them in a barn next to a, a brewery or a distillery and feed them the grain that had had everything distilled out of it. And when their milk came out, it was actually blue in color. They were so sick, and they would put chalk and other things into it to to disguise it, and that stuff was very dangerous to eat, and it killed a lot of people. But I think that a prop, that uh, raw milk from uh, cows that are properly fed and it's properly it's done with expertise and properly stored is one of the most valuable foods of humanity, and it's quite popular in Europe without any restraints on it. Absolutely. I mean, that's a thing is that you see in other countries like France, they have raw milk vending machines now, or at least I know they're in, in the process of getting them, and it's just, it's so much accepted in other countries. I mean, when I meet people here that come from other countries, they explain how, you know, in Europe, it's it's not a big deal, raw milk, and here we just, we have such this, this fear of it. Yeah, you know, it's kind of amazing because I think one of the things that we have had in our modern climate is so much fear about food. And throughout most of history, people viewed food as a joy, as, as something that was wonderful and something that would keep them healthy and make them strong and that they would enjoy eating. And when you look at the culture of the United States today, it, it seems that so many people are just terrified of food. Uh, in fact, I would almost be willing to bet that if you were to research almost any ingredient you could think of, you would find someone who thinks it's unhealthy or would cause any number of a whole bunch of diseases. And... Uh, the one thing, fear, fear is a great way to control people. And I, I personally don't feel that people would have ever switched, from, say, from lard to Crisco. That's probably where it started. Or from real food to the factory variations if they hadn't been scared off the traditional food that, that they, are, they and their ancestors had thrived on for a very long time. Right, certainly. Um, yeah, I know a lot of people that are afraid to eat meat, and that's very much what Meat Lovers May about. Um, I don't want anyone to think I'm like trying to like uh, put a burger in the hands of someone that's a vegan, but it's more directed towards educating the people that like meat, and they think, well, yeah, I like it, but I rarely eat it because I hear it's so bad. But letting people know that it's not. I mean, there are certain types of meat that are bad, but like the Weston A. Price Facebook page says, red meat won't kill you. That's a, uh, that's a <laughs> Facebook page for that called... And also they've started one called Soy Alert, which tells people about, you know, the truth about this supposed Cinderella food that you think is, you know, this great meat substitute. 
Oh, yeah. I uh, basically, I actually made my book soy-free deliberately. So there's not a single soy ingredient in any of, any of the recipes that I've published. And the reason I did that is because I think soy is extremely toxic. If you ferment it, it removes a lot of the toxins if it's done properly. But uh, they also have developed ways to chemically ferment soy foods that I don't think really are are, are that valuable. I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I was once talking with a guy from Korea who was um, interested in real food. And he was telling me about that his mother knew how to make the um, this soy paste that they have. I'm not going to try to pronounce it in Korean because I can't. But it was some. But what they would do is they take a lot of soybeans, add add some things to them, put them in a huge jar, and bury the jar for a year, which would enable it to ferment thoroughly. Now uh, he was telling me that uh, when the older generation dies off, probably nobody will even know how to make it anymore. And what they've substituted instead is something that they give the same name for the ingredient, but they use a chemical process to finish complete uh, fermenting it in two or three days. And I can't believe that you could possibly compare the two in terms of nutrition or anything else. But it, it always amazes me when you keep hearing these things that meat, are unhealth, meat is unhealthy. And they never seem to separate the meat from the chemicals that are and the um, steroids and the unnatural feed that is given to most of the meat in this country, not to mention what the other things they might do to it in terms of processing it, irradiating it, or, or God knows what, because I don't think we know everything. But I've never seen any study or any proof that eating uh, meat you know, from an animal that was fed a species-appropriate diet from a healthy animal has ever harmed anyone. And I would testify for my own great improvement in health. And I've corresponded with many other people who have had the same result, that when you eat really good meat, it's very nourishing and for your body and makes you stronger. That's the key. I mean, the big problem with meat that everyone talks about, these are all tied to the things in the factory farm meat and, to a lesser extent, the, the grain finished meat, even if it's free of like the the, horm the hormones and the antibiotics, it's still still the grain is something they shouldn't be eating. So, and especially that when they're whenever they're fed the grain like the corn, it's genetically modified corn. So you have GMOs oh, yeah. in there, and then in the worst conditions you have the antibiotics they're given and the hormones and also the fact that these cows in the factory farms are living in such cramped conditions that it's very unsanitary and all these links but like you yeah, i haven't seen any studies that show grass-fed beef linked to any of these diseases i mean it's it's high in omega-3 something which helps you fight these diseases well yes and it also it has some other ingredients in it not all of it of which have been identified which i think also help make your body stronger and so on. But at least in Europe, meat was basically reserved for the wealthy and the powerful, and uh, it was very restricted because they often had a shortage of it, and uh, the poor were basically faced forced to eat grains and vegetables, and they weren't as healthy, and they didn't live as long. And so it's really amazing to me that we now have, I guess, politically correct nutrition that you should eat vegetables and grains, which used to be... 
uh, what the poor were forced to eat. They even had laws that prevented them from hunting because they want the uh, people in control wanted to reserve all the meat for themselves, which is uh, so, so. It's been quite a twist. And uh, you know, in terms of what they do to meat and how they process it, there is it. They they turn it into just by grain feeding. There is a, a wonderful chart at eatwild.com that shows how the omega threes and CLA in uh, conjugated linoleic acid, a very valuable nutrient which which helps build muscle and keep people from getting fat, how they go down with every day that a cow is fed grain. And if they're fed the typical stay in a feedlot, it goes down from a high amount to almost nothing. Uh, the natural ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 would be between 1 to 1 to 1 to 1 to 4. By the time it gets out of the feedlot, it could be 1 to 20 or 1 to 60. And our bodies were never used to eating that before. And, uh, well, I'm sorry, I'm kind of going on too long. Oh, but no problem. But actually, I think that that's very interesting that you say about how meat used to be something that the rich ate. I always find it fascinating the history of food and how some foods now that are ones that like anyone can eat were only used to be ones that all the rich could eat. While on the other hand, there's some foods that used to be considered poor people's foods. Like I know for one, um, barbecue, that used to be, that was originally what it started as was poor people's food. And now, I mean, now there's, you know, a lot of high-end barbecue. It's kind of seen as something everyone could like. Um, on the other hand, like uh, ice cream, which you see really cheap, now, um, that was actually something which used to be only like the uh, the very upper class could eat. It was seen as this very rich food, and it's interesting just kind of at how things change of how a type of food is looked at. So certainly, the grass-fed meat was something that was rich. Well, I guess in that time it was just called meat, but um, but it was grass-fed, and that's been a thing which I know is some people's excuse now is that grass-fed meat is too expensive, although that's another thing where I think you just have to kind of do a thing of shopping prices, don't look at the first place that you find grass-fed meat, because in fact we had someone on last week that works very hard at keeping the prices for sustainable meats low where uh, at his, his food store, it's the Figaro Produce in Los Angeles. Good for him. Absolutely, yeah. because it is something that needs to be that everyone should be able to afford. And, I mean, part of the problem is not a lot of people are eating it right now, and it's hard to have something at low prices. So I do believe that as time goes on, we'll see more affordable prices for grass-fed beef as it becomes... I mean, I'd love it to become every... All beef is that. That's hard goal to reach, but I think certainly as it becomes more common, we won't see it as expensive. I mean, we're seeing that with, like, organic produce now as where... It still is more expensive than conventional produce, but I do see it as not as expensive as it used to be. It is actually possible now to find organic produce, and I think I think we're seeing that with grass-fed beef. I'm certainly seeing in Los Angeles more grocery stores, more restaurants carrying it. I mean, even the conventional stores, they've even started carrying some lines of grass-fed beef. You see that, too, that we're... It's becoming more accepted as a normal thing to eat. Oh, definitely, and I'd say the demand of it for it has gone up a great deal. We have a chain of local stores here that carries it from a great farmer, and uh, they've found that as they carry it and uh, 
they can give some tips on people on how to cook it. I've worked with them a little bit on that and let them know the benefits of omega-3 fat. Their stuff is flying off their shelf, and it's actually selling a lot better than the conventional beef. And once people make the switch and, and they learn how to cook it and they they feel better from eating it and they see some of the other advantages. If you cook it properly, and this relates to expense, one, it shrinks a lot less in my experience. So, uh, you know, everybody has had the experience of, of buying a big roast and cooking it and then seeing it shrink to half its size or putting it in a pan and, and seeing water come out if you don't cook it at super high heat because conventional meat carries a lot more water in it. You know, sometimes I wonder if they pump the water in with a machine. There's so much. But with grass-fed, there's a lot less water, so you get more meat once it's been cooked. And then there's the second part that I've found, and many other people have, is that you're satisfied with much less. And I think the reason for that is when you're eating uh, the meat of an animal that hasn't been eating what it was intended to eat, there's a lot less of the nutrients in there that our body needs. And so you can eat it and eat it and eat it. It's, It's true with so much other factory food, and you'll still be hungry. Because no matter how much you eat, you're not getting all the nutrients that your body wants to find there. But when you eat grass-fed meat, I've found that a much smaller amount satisfies me completely. And while I did not have eating less meat as a goal, I probably eat about half as much now as I used to, sometimes less, and I eat all that I want, and I'm satisfied with it. And, uh, you know, I think... Uh, something I would mention is that we're undergoing kind of a beef shortage right now. There's not just in grass-fed, but everywhere, and I think that's made the price of grass-fed go up more than it would have otherwise. And uh, there's many reasons for the beef shortage, but uh, there is a big one now. It won't last forever, and I'm hoping that the price of grass-fed meat will go down. But as you said, you can save a lot by shopping carefully, and uh, there's no doubt about that. And the need to eat less of it when you eat aggressive beef is a point that I always make and I kind of say that anyone who says I eat it in moderation or I limit what I eat, I think that's a lot due to the fact that it's often I hear it from people that aren't eating grass and meat, they're eating conventional and I feel like it just it has this, this conventional meat has something where it makes you want more and I feel like if you're kind of very much in the mindset where you think, okay, I had some once this week, when am I going to eat it again? Um, Kind of you're counting down the days. Then I think you're doing it wrong because I think with me, certainly I've realized when starting to eat grass-fed beef, I've just kind of found that I don't even need to think about, you know, how to limit it because I eat smaller portions of it. And when I go if I go, say, a day without eating meat, um, although I usually eat some type of anthrax, I mean, you know, it's not meat, then I mean, I'll eat, like, turkey, chicken, fish. Um, but just kind of, it, it isn't as big of a deal because when I do eat it, I just kind of feel more satisfied. And I think, the, to me, it's like moderation shouldn't need to be a word that you use. It just kind of should be part of the daily regimen and you don't even think about it. Well, I really like that way of looking at it. You know, more and more I've come to believe that if our senses are not deceived by the chemicals that they put into food to make us want to eat more of it or to fool our taste buds into thinking that we're eating something that has something really nutritious in it when it doesn't, when you're just eating real natural food or grass-fed beef, 
your appetite itself knows how much you want. And when you eat exactly what you want and no more, no less, you're satisfied. And uh, that's basically the way that I try to go with it, not just with meat, but with everything. I, I no longer try to control what portions I eat or to count calories or do that. I, I try to let my appetite be the guide because I think I can trust my senses of hunger and taste and smell as long as they're not being deceived by chemicals. And what I found is that uh, I, will eat, I'm, I generally eat less. I also try to chew it slowly and not gulp it down because I think you get more nutrients there and digest better and to savor it and enjoy it. And um, I find not only do I enjoy eating more and do I feel better, but uh, I have very easy digestion and, and everything works fine. Eating it slowly is certainly a major point. I mean, that's something which even here with conventional health experts, they'll tell you to do that. And, I mean, that's um, something that I actually agree with because it does make sense that you eat it slower. And when you do that, it's, I know it's a thing that, like, your mind um, kind of gets used to eating it slower and it doesn't make you crave more because it takes a while to digest it in the slower you get it. So makes you feel full. That's that's certainly a good thing. Um, I like the what you said about let your appetite be the guide, that your appetite should kind of guide how much you eat of it, not kind of thinking too hard about how much to eat. That's that's a very good point to, uh, to bring up. And in your book, in addition to beef, which we've talked a lot about, you talk about cooking other things such as cooking bison and other types of meat. And so how often do you come... Do you cook, like, gamey meat versus, like, the beef? Well, it kind of depends on price and what I feel like eating. Like, sometimes I'll get a craving for bison, which is grass-fed bison is considerably more expensive than grass-fed beef, so I have to be careful about that. But it does, I think, have some things in it, I don't know what, that are unusually revitalizing and healthy, and I'm satisfied with even less of that than I am with the, with the meat. Uh, probably the other meat I eat the most in addition to bison and to beef would be lamb. And, uh, again, I always try to get that grass-fed, and sometimes I'll have I'll have a craving for that. Um, I will also eat pork on occasion, but only pork that's been pastured because the um, the, the factory pork or, or the lean breeds they use are, quite frankly, I think not even edible. But pastured pork is something totally different, and I, I get a craving for that much less often than the other three. But I think that as long as I'm not being fooled by chemicals when I get a craving for something, it probably means that my body wants to eat it. So I, I don't keep close track of it. I probably eat more beef than either of the others in part because of expense. But uh, even with bison and with lamb, if you, if you shop carefully, you can find better deals. And I enjoy all of them uh, Sometimes I'm able to get some elk, which I enjoy quite a bit as well. And I, I suspect there's uh, it's not that easy to get good chickens over here, but when I can get a good chicken, sometimes we'll have that or a turkey or a duck. And basically, you know, I, I try to follow uh, what am I thinking about eating, what do I want to eat, what is my body trying to tell me about what I need. And uh, I enjoy all of them. I would... Uh, uh, you know, sometimes just for a variety, I'd like to have more bison or more lamb as opposed to just eating beef or red meat all the time. 
But again, it's a very subjective thing, and I, I, I think that what I've come to realize is that we have a medical system, a food industry, and a government that tries to say everybody should do exactly the same thing all the time, like we should eat this size serving of meat. If we have a serving of meat, we should eat this many servings of fruits and vegetables every day or grains or whatever. And I frankly, I have no respect for that. We all, we all are a little bit different. We're all unique individuals. And based on what we're doing or what's going on in our bodies, what the composition of what we need to eat changes as an individual. And uh, frankly, I think the more sensitive we are to that, the better off we are. And now you've written two books. You've written Tender Grass for Meat and Tender Grass for Barbecue, and you have another on the way. Can you tell us a little about that? Well, it's uh, still in the very early stages. I haven't even decided on a title, but it's it's going to be basically covering uh, ancestral food traditions. Not just it'll have a lot of recipes, but it just won't be recipes. It will have information on why. Um, different cultures chose to eat what they eat, and then it'll have a selection of recipes that illustrate the benefits of why they're eating a particular thing. For example, I'm going to have a session on Russian food because uh, traditional Russian food because I have a lot of Russian ancestry, and I'm going to include some traditional dishes, but along with having the recipes, and and of course the meat would be grass-fed or pastured, and uh, the vegetables organic or the equivalent to try to explain why these people ate it, what effect it had on them, and why it's still good for us today. Because I find that kind of thing quite fascinating. Right. Certainly the history is something that fascinates me. And I have some Russian ancestry, and pretty much uh, all my ancestry, my family is all from Europe, from Germany and Hungary. So hearing that, that sounds particularly interesting to me. Um, so could you just give us kind of a short um, thing about how the best ways to cook grass-fed meat as far as cooking it lower, um, cooking it for less time? Okay, I'll, uh, I'll give a few general ideas. One is I think it's very important to have it at cool room temperature when you cook it rather than uh, take it right out of a free, uh, an almost freezing cold refrigerator. And, you know, some people might have safety concerns, and I'm no expert on safety, and I can't say what's safe or not, but I found that but I've never had a problem and I found that if it's at cool room temperature, meaning it's cool, not cold to the touch, it comes out more tender and tastes a lot better. The other thing that I caution against is ever cooking it at super high heat. Uh, you know, we have these restaurants that have boilers that can reach 1,600 degrees, and we're used to barbecuing things right over roaring flames or really hot coals or uh, to boiling meat at really high temperature, and that doesn't work for grass-fed at all. It's I think you need to do that with a lot of factory meat to get the liquid out. But there's a, there's a variety of ways to do it. I generally also like to marinate the meat with a simple marinade. I have a whole bunch of them in my books. But that helps resolve some issues because most grass-fed meat is not dry-aged, and... Uh, the marinating does some of the same things that the age, aging does. If you use the right kind of marinades, it makes it more tender and have a better texture and more flavor. And uh, in terms of cooking, in most cases, a medium temperature is as hot as it should get. Though you can roast things at moderately, fairly high heat for a bit. Uh, one of the things that a lot of my recipes include is what I would call 
is sort of based on the idea that when people originally cooked meat, they cooked it in a hot, maybe a hot baker's oven or in front of a fire that started out hot, but the temperature would fall as the cooking continued. So you'd start out at high heat, it would decrease to medium, and then it would be finished off at low. And I found that for roasting, that kind of thing works really well for grass-fed meats. And if you're going to uh, cook it in a pan or something, another thing that I do in a lot of my recipes is to cook it with plenty of good fat. Like uh, Most of my recipes for steaks, for example, if they're not cooked on a barbecue, they're cooked in a traditional type frying pan with some kind of fat like butter or beef tallow or lard. And that also helps improve it. And, you know, generally they'll tell you that you can only cook it to be rare or or medium rare or it's always going to be tough if you cook it more than that. But I found that if you get the other details right, you can cook it more and it still will be tender. Um, but on the other hand, I personally prefer to eat meat fairly rare most of the time because it feels like I get more nutrients that way. And again, the government would say that you have to cook everything to a much higher temperature, But I, and I'm not a safety expert, but I would say that I think those standards are based on the factory meat with all the strange ingredients it has, and um, I don't think it's at all comparable to the grass-fed meat in terms of cooking or health or taste or anything else. I agree. I mean, I prefer mine also to be rare to medium rare. I think also with cooking it too much, you're more um, likely to expose the meat to carcinogens. And I appreciate you um, coming on here and telling us about uh, about your experiences and how to cook grass-fed meat. Um, we have to have to go to our desserts right now, but before you go, can you tell people where they can find your website? Oh, sure. My website is tendergrassfedmeat.com. And it's easy enough to get to. And uh, probably the best price, if you're interested in my books, the best prices you would you could get them for is at Amazon.com, which gives pretty decent discounts. But there are uh, various other sellers who carry it as well. And um, I guess that would be it. All right. Well, it's been great to have you on. Uh, certainly a pleasure to have you on for Meat Lovers May. And we got to go to our desserts now. So now for our desserts about how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. Today is Food Revolution Day. This is a day organized by Jamie Oliver for people to come together and educate others about food issues we're facing globally. Events are going on all over the world. To find out how you can get involved, visit the website at foodrevolution.com. This week's foie gras pick is the two dinners being held at the Third Street restaurant, Son of a Gun. Son of a Gun is run by John Chuck and Vinny DiTolo, who also own Animal, which has meant, been mentioned a couple times in my foie gras recommendations. The dinners cost $175 per person and consist of six courses plus a dessert. I'll be giving foie gras picks every month up until the ban on July 1st. Another way you can help with the fight for foie is to buy a t-shirt that says, Don't Touch My Foie Gras, on the website, flavorgallery.com. That's F-A-L-A-V-O-U-R-G-A-L-L-E-R-Y dot com. 10% of the sales go to helping the California Chefs Organization looking to overturn the ban. That's all for this week of The Appropriate Omnivore. To find out more about my news stories, my guest, where to buy his books, and events happening this week, visit my blog at appropriateomnivore.blogspot.com. 
Next week will be our final show for Meat Lovers May. I'll be talking to Chris Masterjohn about debunking the myth that cholesterol is bad for your health. That's all for now.